Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Turkey is one of just a few countries to open to American travelers during the pandemic. And I was there producing my latest one-hour special for PBS. It became a great opportunity for me to sit down for a history lesson with Ceylon Yaginsu from the New York Times to discuss life in Istanbul now. Then a discussion with Elizabeth Kurumlu on the history of an authentic Ottoman palace hotel. First up, from the New York Times, Ceylon Yaginsu. Uh, as you know, we're in Turkey this week. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about. And who better to talk about it than... Jaylon Yuginsu from the New York Times, who's basically right now in Istanbul. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Peter. How are you doing? Good. Well, you know, far from uh, not only is it one of my favorite cities in the world, uh, it's also the one, and, and, and from a historical perspective, but from from a political perspective, people don't realize. And I'm not just talking about Istanbul. I'm talking about Turkey as a country. Uh, they just don't realize how many countries it borders. I mean, if you look at the region, it's not just where East meets West. It's like wild. You take it's everything from Syria to Bulgaria, uh, you know, all the way around to the other side. And, and, and just for as a reporter, and I'm sure you feel the same way, it's a gold mine of opportunity for great stories. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I, I feel very lucky. I actually got kind of stuck here. I was relocating um, from London to New York for my new job. I just joined the travel desk in September. And uh, just as I was moving, the virus just started surging again. And I had basically come just to visit my family here. Um, But I got stuck uh, because, you know, I didn't want to move when the cases were going up, it just didn't really feel safe. Um, but there have been so many stories to do here and from here because it's also so close to Europe. It's on the same time zone. 
Um, but you know, I can't believe it's, it's been six months since, since I joined and since I've, I've started covering this beat because it's just been nonstop service journalism, you know, trying to help our readers navigate this forever changing landscape, this forever receding horizon. And, you know, we're about to hit, you know, one year without travel, um, you know, coming up in March. And while we have a lot to kind of be hopeful for in the fall and, you know, the summer, hopefully even sooner than that, it's I think now is a good time to take stock a little bit of just the impact this has had um, on the industry specifically, especially on on travel workers. And that's basically what I'm focusing on right now, speaking to people who just haven't been able to work for the last yeah. year. And that's certainly, and that's certainly the case in, in Turkey. As you and I are speaking now, uh, there's mm-hmm. still a curfew uh, during the week from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. And mm-hmm. on the weekends, Turkey shuts down. I mean, there's just, unless you have a U.S. passport, there are a few places might be open. No one's going anywhere. Yeah. But, but what, what has been amazing about that is it has still stayed open for tourists and, at the weekends, especially in Istanbul, tourists are still visiting museums and sites um, because they, they are open. Uh, and at the beginning, you know, I went out and I did some reporting on this and it did feel very exciting to, to be able to see all these incredible sites without getting in line, without being in crowded spaces. But then after a while, the novelty of that kind of wears off because, you know, ultimately, what is what is a city without local people, without restaurants, without bars? Um, without cafes, it's, it just feels almost, you know, I, apocalyptic. It feels like something's wrong or something's happened and it, it just, it just feels very strange and very surreal. Um, so it, you know, in one sense, I, you know, speaking to tourists that they, they said, you know, it's, it's cool to have the whole city to yourself, but it does, it gets a bit boring after a while. Um, well, you, you, when you think about it, I mean, and, and I've been doing this for a long time. Travel is one of those experiences that, by definition, is meant to be shared. And and so much of Turkey is about uh, large social gatherings, if you will, and shared experience. And if you don't have that, what do you have? Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Um, I feel exactly the same way. And it's, in one sense, I think it has been attractive to people because the borders have basically stayed open. I mean, right now... Uh, there are restrictions for people coming from the UK or South Africa or Brazil because of the new variants. But Turkey's been this place where people have, so for example, um, binational couples who can't go to one another's countries have kind of come to Turkey to meet up. Or, um, you know, people have come here for medical tourism uh, because it's cheap. And, you know, people who are just itching to also just get a bit of a vacation, there are still you know, there's a lot of space here. There are still places to go, which are kind of relatively safe. Um, there's a good, good hiking um, and countryside beaches. And uh, so it, it is it is still an attractive place to come. But it does. Like I said, it just feel it just doesn't feel the same. Um, the experience. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I've, I've been coming for, you know, for years. Uh, I just came in about five or six days ago. And of course, the requirements are you have to show a negative COVID-19 test within 72 hours to enter, much like we have to do when we return to the United States. But mm-hmm. once you're here, um, you're sort of restricted. You, you know, the restaurants are closed except for mm-hmm. takeout. Uh, yes, I agree with you. It's great to go to some of the great you know sites, whether it's, you know, 
the Sound Sophia, the, uh, the Blue Mosque, Top Copy, and of course, the, the Covered Bazaar, all the usual suspects. Um, and But the problem is, it's sort of depressing when you go to the Grand Bazaar, because usually you're, you're elbow to elbow with people, and that's not the case now. Um, and But I did tell you, I'll just, I did tell you what, what I did do, which I thought was great, is I jumped on the ferry and went over to Prince's Island, to one of the Prince's oh, Islands. That's fun. And, and that was great. First of all, you get outside, you're breathing the fresh air, you're not in a crowded situation. The ferry was completely empty. And you, when you get to Princess Island, there are, there are no cars there, little electric vehicles, and you walk everywhere. It was a wonderful afternoon. So you yeah. can get out and see stuff. It's, it's, it's pretty good. And the good news is, uh, at least the rumor is, I'm sure you've been following the story, that the government says that as of March 1st, which is coming up in just a few days, uh, they're going to start in different areas on a staggered level to start reopening some of the infrastructure. Yeah, I think it's going to be quite slow, um, just like, as it is everywhere. Uh, but the great thing um, about Turkey is there's lots of uh, outdoor dining. And I think that's that's what they'll start with. And also after March, the weather will start getting warmer. Um, so there'll be a lot of activities to do outside, uh, which will be good. I mean, people... Again, just going back to travel workers, just because I'm talking to so many of them right now, they're so desperate to work. So many of them have had to just take up other jobs, um, you know, just speaking to a pilot who is now delivering uh, food, uh, you know, groceries, who has taken an 80 percent pay cut. Um, I you know, outside of Turkey, too, I spoke to a uh, safari worker in Uganda who um is basically having to eat one meal a day so he can afford the Wi-Fi for his daughter's uh, university. I mean, it's just been one year of, of no work, um, people washing cars, and it, it's just been really brutal. So I, there is just this real desperation just to, to get back to work as soon as, as it's possible, and hopefully we'll start seeing that soon-ish. We're um, talking to Jalen Yagunsu from the New York Times. Jalen... You know, the numbers that you mentioned are really quite staggering. Half the pilots who are not flying right now may never fly again. Uh, we have restaurants in New York, as I'm sure you know, 1,500 of them have closed permanently, will never reopen. Uh, and then you take a look at the economies of 93 countries in the world that depend almost totally in terms of their GDP on travel and tourism. They don't have a plan B. You know, uh, whether you're a safari operator in Africa, whether you are going down the Nile in, in Egypt, uh, I could go country by country, and you can literally connect the dots in normal times to say, this is how people literally put food on the table, and they can't do that now. Yeah, exactly. And, and also, just in terms of the vaccinations, I mean, yes, the efforts are going quite quickly in the West, um, but it's going to take time in, for developing countries. And you know, we are we might be faced with a scenario and I have been speaking to some travel workers about this, especially in, in African countries where uh, people from the West are being vaccinated and will be willing to do a safari and travel for a safari. But then your guide won't be vaccinated and will be at risk. And, you know, they say it doesn't matter. Uh, work comes first. You know, it's, it's not health comes first. And it's 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 going to take it's going to take a lot of time, I think, Um for things to just go back to what they were in 2019. And, you know, I just don't think it, it's, I think it will take um, a, a few years basically before yeah. we see it again. I agree with you. We're talking to Jalen Yugunsu from the New York Times. 
You know, it's interesting when you take a look at the airfare component. You know, we talked about this on the show over the last, what, six months. The airfare right now from New York to Los Angeles is $96, uh, unheard of. The airfare from Miami to Los Angeles, it was $31. The cab ride's more expensive. And then when you go to international fares, they're ridiculously low. Uh, there's, a, there's a fare I, just, I priced out from Turkey to New York for $490. That's never been done before. So from a buyer's market perspective, if you can play by the rules and do the proper protocols and behave and wear your mask and do all your tests, uh, the world is open to you in many respects. Yeah, uh, I mean, definitely. Uh, but even we are seeing that as restrictions, um, will, you know, will be lifted soon or as the government start announcing a time frame. So I'm using the UK as an example. They've started talking about April, June, you know, having the whole population, adult population vaccinated by the end of July. So this is getting people excited about the prospect for travel towards the end of the summer. And uh, so people have been booking uh, and they're trying to, to get get onto those cheap airfares now um, but before they go up. And, and you know, obviously they, they will go up as the restrictions are lifted, uh, especially in Europe and the UK. Um, but I think we'll also be seeing in the US at least um, more domestic travel this. Oh, yeah. Summer. Um, so I think we'll we'll be seeing, uh, you know, reduced airfares but for, for different routes for, for more like local domestic routes that certain airlines weren't actually flying before so we'll oh, see yeah, they're doing that yes yeah they are and 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 the thing is what, what amazes me is is something else that's happened i mentioned earlier how many airlines have completely failed have been liquidated and yet there are 21 new airlines about to start there's always somebody out there wanting to start another airline and reinvent the wheel at the most ridiculous time you can imagine when nobody's flying. And in the, and, and as you mentioned, Jaylon, about domestic travel in the United States, at a time when Delta, United, and American are cutting their routes, the low fare carriers, Spirit, Allegiant, Frontier, Sun Country, even Southwest, are flooding the zone with all new routes and new cities because I think they're anticipating what you just said, a boom in domestic travel starting in the second quarter. Yeah. Exactly. And I think we'll also see that see that in Europe too. Uh, people just traveling kind of closer within Europe, uh, just jumping on those cheap deals. And, and it goes beyond airlines, actually, those cheap package holidays uh, with hotels included, all inclusive resorts. Uh, I think we'll be seeing a, a lot of that bookings for those towards um, maybe the end of the summer, uh, towards the fall. And then, of course, I, I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the cruise lines, which continue, at least the U.S.-based lines, continue to push back their resumption start dates month after month after month. I'm one of those people who actually believes they will start cruising again this year, but it may not be till the end of July. Oh, wow. That's quite optimistic, I think. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe towards, like you said, towards the end of the summer. Um, but there's still a lot of work to be done, especially for U.S. Cruises, they still have to do the simulation, the testing. And I guess the biggest question for cruises is, will there be a requirement for vaccinations? Um, oh, my, my bet is absolutely. Uh, you've yeah. already had one cruise line, Crystal, saying you want to get on a Crystal ship, you have to be vaccinated. You've had Norwegians saying that if you want to be a crew member on their ship, you have to be vaccinated. Well, once the cruise line says the cruise has to be the cruise has to be vaccinated, the passengers are right behind them. It's inevitable, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if we'll see uh, a trend where just older people who have been vaccinated already will be able to go on cruises first, if there will be specific cruises that cater to them, maybe on a smaller scale. Um, perhaps that's what we'll, we'll start seeing first. But I mean, I, I speak to, to cruise fans regularly and people are just dying to get back on, on board. You know, people who usually book two to three cruises a year and they just keep getting pushed back and they're just itching to, to get back on it. And they said the second, you know, whether there's a vaccination requirement or not, they don't care that they just want to get back on board. <laughs> I hear them. And in fact, one thing they're going to get ready for is you're still going to have to wear your masks. And you're probably going to get tested two to three times during the cruise to satisfy the port requirements where you're going to be landing. Ports are not going to let anybody in unless they have preclearance of vaccination and also a COVID-19 negative test. That's my guess. Yes. And I, and I think some uh, cruise companies will try and they will try and determine where people will be able to go Um you know, once they land on ports, I don't think they'll be allowed to necessarily go everywhere. So like if you land in Istanbul, you might not be able to go to the Grand Bazaar or somewhere that's very crowded where, again, you could contract the virus and bring it back on board. I think there will be limited itineraries. And I think that they, the, the cruise companies will try and control it a little bit more, especially at the beginning, just to test the waters and, and see how it goes. Oh, yeah. You can almost count on the fact that the traditional shore excursion will be completely redefined as a very heavily escorted shore excursion to vetted areas. We're talking to Jalen Yugunsu from The New York Times, who's actually in Istanbul, not far from where we are right now. Jalen, thank you so much for, for talking to us. My thanks to Ceylon. My go-to person in Istanbul is Elizabeth Kurumlu. She knows where to go and perhaps better than that, where not to go. And she knows all about one of the great hotels of the world, the Shiran Palace, an authentic Ottoman palace. Yes, the sultans lived here, but that's just the beginning of the story. Uh, you look up, you're in history. You look out, you're in history. You look down, you're in history. And my next guest is a student of that history, of that architecture, of that religion, or those religions, I should say. Elizabeth Kurumlu, how are you? I am very well. Welcome to Istanbul. Thank you. Or welcome back, in my case. Well, yeah, you know, I got to do it. Uh, when you come to a hotel like this, and people are coming to it for the first time, what do you tell them? Before or after they come? Tell me both. <laughs> okay. Um, I usually want to keep it as a surprise um, before people come, because this is the address in Istanbul, if you want to stay somewhere in Istanbul. Uh, it's a five-star hotel, all right, and to many... And by the way, there are other five-star hotels. Exactly, but to but, me yeah. and to many industry veterans, this is a five-plus-star hotel. You know, when I first came here, not even when I first came here, about 10 years after I first came here, I stayed at the old prison, the Four Seasons. Right. Right, and that was pretty cool, because in the suite they gave me, I could actually look on the wall and see the the etching, the scratches of the prisoners that were complaining about the conditions there, and I was in a suite. Uh, there was yeah. a little irony there. But if I have a choice between a prison and a palace, I got news for you. I pick the palace. Well, I would too, because this uh, gives more than a prison to you. It gives several different things to you. First of all, location, location, location. Yes, the Four Seasons, the one which is the prison, uh, is in a good location, walking distance to highlights of the historic highlights of Istanbul. But Again, this we are on the Bosphorus here, and the Bosphorus is the busiest sea, sea street in the world. So 
you're right on the water. First of all, that's an advantage. And how is that an advantage? Advantage. You find the answer in the history of the palace itself, actually. Even back then, in the 17th century, it was location, location, location. And they chose this spot for uh, some good reasons. And there were three main good reasons for choosing the spot. And one was being right on the water, easy access. Uh, second was there was an untouched forest right behind where the palace is today. Um, the third one, we got the cool winds from the Black Sea through the Bosphorus, so it was a great place to be in the summertime. And the fourth and the last one. Ah, there was another one. Yeah, okay. there's another one, a crucial one, is this is the escape point. So if you're the sultan of, or if you're just public or the rich people, you basically spend most of your time in the Seraglio point or the old historic point, which is quite easily accessible to the palace. But if you want to escape from it, you want to come along the Bosphorus. So this is the spot they found at the beginning of the 17th century, and that became a trend. Starting with the affluent people, they wanted to have their summer homes along the Bosphorus. Which remains to this day. Exactly, and they, are, they have a special name called, they are called as Yalu. Think of it like a huge mansion, but it has to be right on the water. And in the 18th and 19th century, it was all wooden ones. And, and there's still some there today. There are several of them, and they start, this is prime location, being on the Bosphorus, and the tiniest little yellow starts about $1 million. And that's a tiny one. I know one that sold for $152 million. So A wooden one. A wooden one. And it's very hard to keep these wooden ones. Every year you have to renew and renew and renew and keep them in good track. So it's not only the uh, real estate price, but the maintenance is also quite expensive. So this all started around here in the Chiran district at the beginning of the 17th century. And that idea, actually, along the Bosphorus, there's an entire area called as Terapia, coming from the old Greek. And today it's called Tarabia, coming from Therapia, where people actually went to do some therapy. And even today, the tradition goes on because we have the saying in Turkish. We say, oh, let's go get some Bosphorus air. Which means let's go to the hammam? No. <laughs> it means let's go along the Bosphorus because you have the freshest air. Nowadays, it's a different story because we have so much traffic in Istanbul. It's a metropolitan city, so it's changing. But still today, like when I was a kid growing up in the family, we always said, oh, let's go get some Bosphorus air, meaning the, the whole family comes together take the children, and you go along the Bosphorus and have something to eat, which is usually seafood, because the Bosphorus is a great source of seafood too, so you find fresh fish coming right off the Bosphorus. There you go, another reason to come to here. And in fact, the other day, you know what I did? I went fishing off the Galata Bridge. No way. I did. What did you catch? I caught little bluefish. Okay, yeah. yeah that's and, what and, they... then we, and then we cooked them right there. No kidding. On a little grill, you bet. All right, so how, you liked it, huh? I loved it. Yeah, so, so uh, the Bosphorus has some bluefish, bigger one, yeah. which, which was the symbol of the city during the Byzantine times, actually. And uh, the Byzantines used the fish as their symbol simply because that fish came out of the, right out of the Bosphorus. Now, I actually discovered a fish here at the hotel that's not from the Bosphorus, but nearby, Hamzi. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Do you know, well, I'm a good traveler. Um, 
I haven't covered the whole world yet, but I've never seen in any other country where they make a dessert with fish. But we make... Wait, wait, excuse me. You're going to have to explain that. Yeah. Hamsi is such a, such a culture in the Black Sea, the northern part of Turkey. They even make a dessert made out of Hamsi. Okay. You, I, you know, we're not going to go there. <laughs> it, it's not fishy. It's not fishy at all. If I didn't tell you that there is fish in it, you, you would never be able to tell. We even have a chicken pudding like that. Oh, please. Now you're really getting... It's very tasty. You got to try it. Okay, let me go one step beyond, since we're on the subject of dessert. Right. Okay, there are two desserts here that I live for, I cannot ever get enough of. One is, of course, sutlach, okay. rice pudding, Right. which if you've not had it in Turkey, you've not had rice pudding. I'll just put it that I way. I agree. And I love the way they torch it on the top, right? <laughs> right. And then the second one, which you can get in in uh, Istanbul, but you really get it in Antakya on the Syrian border, is... Kunafe. Ooh, let's go. <laughs> oh, my God. The best grilled cheese, sweet, tasty with, with the honey and the syrup, and oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. those are not the only ones. It's obviously, you haven't tried the chicken pudding yet. You no, I haven't, and I'm not going to. It, it's not chicken yet at all. I don't care. <laughs> okay, No, but, but I will tell you this. Anybody coming over here who's either going to have the rice pudding or the, uh, the sutlach or the kunafe... You need to plan ahead. You know why? Because the minute you have it, you need to take a nap. Yes. And also, if you're having the, the real kunafe, because nowadays they have the frozen ones. Oh, no. no so there's no to, such thing. Yeah. I'm sorry. It has to come hot. Yeah. It has to be made right while you watch it. Absolutely. Right over the old charcoal. Uh-huh. Not, the, not, a, not some gas oven. The old wooden charcoal yeah. chips. That's the best way to do But you know what? There's always a topping that it goes so well I, with. Well, I know. Pistachio. No. No. What? Not a topping like that to top it all, oh, let what? me say. What? Turkish coffee. That's true. I did that in the bazaar the other night. A friend of mine runs a little Turkish coffee place there, and I told him I'd have Turkish coffee with him if he got me what? The sutlach. Ah, okay. And they, they had it in the bazaar. They brought it over. It was perfect. Okay. What well, a combination, right? I'll have to take you to my secret spots. Where's your secret? Tell everybody. I can't tell the secret spots. <laughs> <laughs> No, but there are several places. I live on the Asian side of Istanbul, which people usually don't go. I go. I go to the Katakoy Market. Wonderful. That's, I live on the Katakoy. I go to the Pickle Guy. Right. You know the Pickle well, Guy? Of course I know the... I go to the Muscle Guy. Okay. I go to the Candy Store. How about the old uh, old restaurants? There are some old Lokanta-style yeah. restaurants there. Yeah. But uh, there are some new addresses there. You know, in Turkey now, we have um, the trendy thing is like the Nouelle traditional Turkish cuisine. So there are restaurants popping up all the time. And there are some eateries, like small little eateries hidden on the streets where the tourists don't go. So I always recommend my people to go beyond the tourist oh, response. You must. Mm. You must. I have a, a mantra, if you will. Whenever I visit any location and... You'll understand it immediately the minute I tell you. Ready? Yes. No gift shop. Okay. <laughs> if there's a gift shop, I'm not going. Oh, you're right. You're right. Not going. Yeah. But, you know, you forgot one thing. Turkish breakfast. Mm. Describe oh. a Turkish breakfast to me. Well, <laughs> Turkey is a foodie heaven, and we always have culinary tours around that. But Turkish breakfasts are special, and they come from certain regions of Turkey because Turkey has seven different regions. When I mention Turkish breakfast to people, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But it's a pretty big, it's a meza, it's a pretty big spread. Yeah. Um, 
Turkish people are crazy about eating, period. And it starts with breakfast. And there are certain regions, like there's a specific city in the east of Turkey, which is called Van, spelled as V-A-N. And it's famous for a few things, but breakfast is definitely one of the famous things. And uh, it's only one place, but it started with Van breakfast. So think of a table, I don't know, the biggest table you can think of. They serve so much that you can cover the table with different items. And it's simply the biggest thing because in Eastern Turkey, they have um, uh, animals and uh, animal husbandry. So they use anything from the animal, like milk products, the meat, uh, I mean, you name it. So there are variations of cheese to start with. So cheese, 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 maybe at least 12 different kinds of cheese. Honey, which in Turkey comes in the calm, many times, all kinds of jam. And each region of Turkey actually has different kinds of honey. And you know what else we've got? Pomegranate juice. Oh, very good point, very good point. People in the US, it is being introduced actually, and um, but uh, pomegranate juice is usually used as the drizzle over things. Yes, salad dressing. Salad dressing goes yeah. very well with meat. Uh, but you know, the Italians have the balsamic, and that is exactly what the pomegranate juice to the Turks, just like the Italian balsamic. So we use it on everything. And um, it was lost at one time in the big cities, but now in Istanbul, if you go to gourmet restaurants, you'll find it on the table, actually. It's coming back, just like the hammam culture in Turkey. So <laughs> We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but I, I I'm still on the food, so hold on. Right. So As part of this Turkish breakfast, there's one other thing that most people in America don't have for breakfast, cucumbers. Hmm. And, and tomatoes. they are the sweetest cucumbers. True, and tomatoes. Yeah. And and we love our olives. Turkey is an olive-growing country, and we produce a lot of olive oil. So we all have this. But the most crucial part, we have bread. Yeah, you guys are absolutely, you, you consume, Turkish people consume the most amount of bread per capita in the world. I would say no, so. No, you do. And there's an old simit place. Simit is a, is a, a, a round piece of bread. It's like a, 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 a very thin bagel, if you will, uh, yes. covered with sesame seeds. Exactly. You got to get it hot out of the old oven with the old wooden spatula coming out. And you go there in the morning and you don't buy one. You cannot buy one. <laughs> you got to buy three. Well, it also serves very well as breakfast, lunch, or dinner if you're yeah. on the go. You just eat it for any of those meals. Yeah. And then there's one other fruit that you have here, obviously seasonal, but it's never sweeter. It's never better. Mulberry. Mm. Oh, my goodness. White and purple mulberries, yeah. yes. And it's very, very healthy. It's one of the best antioxidants you can have. Now, before we get to the hammam culture, i got to stay on the food thing for just two more things. One is baklava. <laughs> and for those people who think you've had baklava, you haven't, because there's something called dry baklava, which is even better. Right. Explain. Well, um, for for many Europeans or Americans, baklava is too sweet. It, it, me too. Yeah, many people find it too sweet, but that's only because you go to a market and eat it in a not so decent place, let's say, and and because they put some syrup in it. It's and over. It's overkill. It's overkill. Thank you. And uh, in the good old days, they used to use honey to make it. Obviously, nowadays they uh, use sugar instead, or sometimes not even sugar. God knows what. So, so uh, if you have a baklava in a decent place, and especially the dry baklava, yeah. Uh, uh, it, first of all, it stays longer. 
mm-hmm. can save it for longer, but it doesn't have that sweety, syrupy texture. Right. Uh, so I, I personally prefer that too. And when I used to live in the U.S., my father always sent me packs and packs of that and also some almond paste and pistachio. Obviously, obviously it kept the family together. <laughs> yes. And yes. the second item, of course, is Turkish Delight. Yes. And, you know, I grew up with Turkish Delight that was just like one kind. Now... You've got the pistachios inside. Oh, My favorite is the pomegranate. Oh, I haven't had that. Yeah, pomegranate locum or pomegranate Turkish delight is my favorite nowadays. Yeah, it's called locum. Locum, yeah. exactly. And, and it's, it also comes from the palace. And, and all these things you're mentioning, we are in the Tram Palace, you know. They make it. They make They, they have make a special baklava section. They make section. the baklava here. They do the chocolate. They do the, the Turkish delight. I mean, basically, you're going to come out with a big, it'll be five sizes larger. Yeah, and, and you met, we were talking about the breakfast earlier now that uh, Turan has one of the most sumptuous breakfast tables. And uh, it's usually served in open buffet. And that has become also another trend in Istanbul. On Sunday mornings, uh, people go for brunch, just like they do elsewhere. And Turan is one place where they prefer to come all the time because they're very famous for that sumptuous breakfast buffet. And then, of course, there's the one thing I want to talk to you about, which which basically persists to this day, and that's the hammam culture. Oh, yeah. And, you know, very... The other day we were over at the Grand Bazaar because anybody who comes to Turkey, even for the ninth time, finds themselves over there at least once. Right. Um... It's an amazing story about, first of all, it's not only the largest covered bazaars, but basically the oldest. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, I was in the, in the one in the Antakya on the Syrian border. That goes back to 300 B.C. Sure. I mean, people forget the history here. So much to talk about with our guest, Elizabeth Kurumlu. Uh, but her favorite topic we saved to last. My favorite topic, too. It's the hammam culture. Now, before we get too deep into the hammam culture, we have to get into a definition mm-hmm. of a hammam. Mm-hmm. Um, the hammam is sometimes called to as the Turkish bath, and uh, it is basically a Roman bath. That's where it comes out from. But there are some differentiations. So the hammam culture, um, more likely the sweat bathing culture, uh, used to be around starting with the Romans, and it was part of daily life. And when the Turks came into this land from Central Asia, they brought their own culture. Um, later on, when they accepted Islam and Prophet Muhammad actually gave some teachings. So one of the one of the fundamental teachings of Islam is cleanliness, and Prophet Muhammad actually emphasized this. Which and is by words. the way, let me just say, Istanbul has more than six thousand mosques, and whenever you go near a mosque, you will see a little small round building with faucets mm-hmm. for people to wash their feet before they pray. And that is, thank you for mentioning that, because that, again, ties back to the cleanliness idea. And in Islam, you have to take ablution, wash yourself during, uh, before each prayer. So you wash your hands, you wash your feet, you wash your face. So you have to be clean all the time. It also refers to the cleanliness of the mind, but that's another issue. So That's an entirely different show. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so you have to keep yourself clean. That's why they established fountains and water systems, which connected to the hammams all around the city. And when you say a mosque, it's always, think of it always, as a little city. It's a complex. People think a mosque is a place for prayer. No, it's not like the church. Yes, there's the main building where you go for prayer, but then it's a complex city where you go, um, like there's a school, there's a hospital, there's a hammam, there's everything around it. So coming back to the hammam culture, um, it's where you go for bathing. 
because in the good old days, uh, the homes did not have plumbing system. So they would go to the hammams to clean themselves. That was the basic purpose of it. But it was also a social place, especially for the ladies, like during the Ottoman times. So it was the original spa. Yes, thank you. So from that being the traditional place, the social place, you know, all, all kinds of traditions around it. Uh, in the Starting in the 20th century, when the five-star hotels started getting more and more established in Istanbul, the culture came back. And because once it was going down, it wasn't considered a good thing to be. So the hotels introduced the spa ideas. And now we have Turkish hammams in almost every other five-star hotel. But of course, there are some special ones, like the historic one in the Trump Palace Kempinski. Which is all marble. It is all marble, and uh, the work on the marble, it's exquisite. You have seen... I mean, it's a piece of art. It, it, it's a complete piece of art, and I've seen over 500 hammams in my lifetime everywhere, in, uh, including some hole in the walls, but this is to this day the best hammam in the world that I have seen. Other than the artwork, why? Uh, <laughs> first of all, it's one of the few places of the old palace that stayed as is after the fire, because simply because it was all marble. Um, but it's basically the artwork, and this, there are certain stories around it, like the French Empress Eugenie coming to it, and there's a love story. It's a rumor, but we don't know. But so uh, it's not only the place itself, but the stories behind it. But again, it's basically for the artistic achievement that it gives to you, and you'll see what I mean when we get there. And when you get to a hammam, if you've not done it, this is not a traditional spa. This is serious. Well, it's a little bit different than a spa. Uh, the steam is not, it's not as steamy as a sauna to start with. And it's, there are certain different rooms, three major rooms. So there is the cold room, the transition room, and then there's the hot room. The major difference is the exfoliation. So no other steam culture in the world has this. Only the hammams, which are also in Morocco or in some Middle Eastern countries, there is a little mitten, and you scrub it on your skin, and the purpose is to take the dirt out of your body, and it opens up your pores. So it's a very healthy thing to do, and highly recommended. And then the best part comes after this. You clean your body, open up your pores, and then you have the soap massage. And that is to die for. If I were to recommend three things to do when you're in Turkey, the hammam would be high on my list. My thanks to Elizabeth Kurumlu and to Ceylon Yuginsu. And my thanks to you for listening to this special Eye on Travel podcast from Istanbul. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, just review and rate this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. For all the breaking travel news, and it's hot and heavy these days, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcast starting May 8th. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts starting May 1st.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.